Nothing on the Bonnell Foundation's Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast should be considered medical advice. Medical advice can only come from your CF physician. Cystic fibrosis can be a devastating diagnosis, but living with the disease can bring positivity and a new appreciation for each day. From the Bonnell Foundation in Detroit, Michigan, it's the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast, sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. Here's your host, Laura Bonnell. Dr. Durhane Wong-Rieger is the president and the CEO for the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders. She's involved and chairs so many committees and organizations. She's also an author, lecturer, and trainer, and she is the perfect person to talk with about making healthcare a level playing field for all. As you know, we have interviewed so many people on this podcast talking about the challenges in different countries to access medications. In Egypt, the Ministry of Health doesn't recognize cystic fibrosis. CF families there don't have the basics like liquid vitamins for their infants. In Thailand, it's the same. In India, infants are dying before they're even diagnosed. In Pakistan, families can't get drugs, and so on and so on. Dr. Wong Rieger recently presented at the World Health Organization Essential Medicines Open Forum in regard to low- and middle-income countries' access, or lack of it, to drugs. Rare Disease International has done some research about the issues that Durhan will share with us, and Dr. Wong Rieger's organization has proposed to the WHO for a collaboration on essential medicines for rare disease which ties to her collaboration on global rare disease networks. There is an initiative for PQMD, or Project for Quality Medicinal Donations, that has been trying to launch on donations to sustainability that they are recruiting companies and donor foundations to try to support. The development of the initiative is now in stage two of the feasibility work. There are models out there for global work like the World Federation of Hemophilia and International Goucher Foundation, and there is no international CF organization so far, so we're going to discuss that as well. And because we want to get this podcast started with her, I can't list everything she's involved with, but internationally, she is the chair of the Rare Disease International, chair of Asia Pacific Rare Disease International. She's the treasurer of the United Nations Non-Governmental Organization for Rare Disease, and about 15 other organizations at least, and it's all in our show notes. So it is wonderful to see you. And first of all, I have to say, I love your hair. I love your hair in every photo that I've seen. And today I have some orange on. You have some orange on. And your hair has orange and yellow. And I love it. Beautiful. Well, it's intentional. We just want to get people distracted enough so they aren't really focusing too much on what I might or might not be giving them in terms of actual dialogue. So it's good. You've already been distracted. I think it's wonderful. And I love that. I love your energy. And I've only just met you, but just what I've seen and a promo that you did on Global Genes for them as well. I loved that. And I think your hair had some purple in it then. Um, But yeah, I love I love everything that I know about you already. Why did you decide to get started in this rare disease world? Well, rare diseases for most of us comes by quite naturally. I have two children, both of whom were born with rare disorders, different ones. And um, I mean, that isn't exactly how I got involved with um, the actual advocacy for rare diseases. 
I'm a psychologist by training, uh, worked for a number of years in practice, but also taught for about 20 years. But I always did uh, community patient advocacy on the side. And I got very involved, actually, with um, the hemophilia community at the time when there was the huge issues around blood scandal and people being affected with HIV. So I spent, you know, six or seven years as a volunteer with them. And after that, really felt like I really need to get out of the university into real life and actually try to do things that had some real impact. So I decided to actually go in as a patient advocate full time. I actually had no job. I had no income doing it. But my husband was very supportive. He says, yeah, go for it. So that was how I got involved. And then rare diseases, of course, you know, again, being somewhat of a natural uh, uh, calling for me, it was also something in Canada that was really far behind many other countries. So we tried to put together a, a rare disease policy, getting the government of the U.S. and the EU in terms of supporting drugs for rare diseases, supporting access to you know, screening um, um, therapies. And that became a, a real mission for me, uh, gosh, you know, some 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah, it's wonderful. And you are Canadian. I love it. I love that, you know, we're working together um, with Canada and the U.S. Um, from your view, how does the American healthcare system look to you, maybe even compared to Canada? Because there was a time that you know, um, everyone thought that healthcare was better in Canada. And I think, you know, we both have our challenges in each country. And it was um, big and scary over here when uh, previous administration president thought that it was a good idea to model pricing after countries like Canada. Well, to be honest and to be frank, I am both an American and a Canadian. I was raised in the U.S., my family came over when I was very small, so I was raised mostly in the U.S. My husband's an American. All my family lives in the U.S. All of his family lives in the U.S. We're the only kind of uh, escapees into Canada. So just <laughs> to kind of put into context. So I know the American system very well. And in fact, of course, everybody in our families, right, sort of rely on the American system. And you're absolutely right. There's goods and there's challenges on both sides, right? I mean, when you talk about advances, I mean, the U.S. had the Orphan Drug Act, 1983, six, 700 new therapies as a result of that. A tremendous investment in terms of things like newborn screening, in terms of diagnosis, in terms of specialty centers, absolute best specialist care. I mean, if you've got cancer, if you've got a challenging disorder, you know, even in Canada, right? The U.S. is our safety net. If you need to get rapid access to an MRI, you need to get rapid access to some form of a very high precision, you know, diagnosis, you go to the U.S. I mean, if you can afford it, right? And so this becomes, you know, as we say, the um, the challenges of both systems. Obviously, in Canada, we have more or less universal health coverage. Everybody gets health care. Everybody gets access to, in theory, a family practitioner, though obviously there are not necessarily enough of them to actually go around. But health care is free. Um, the challenge, I think, is that we don't have the high-level specialties in some of the areas. We don't have the big access. I'll give you a very personal example. My husband, who has Parkinson's disease, he's had it for a good number of years now. Um, actually, he lives in a care facility at the moment. We've been trying to get him since COVID back in for his checkup for a sec, you know, an appointment. Mm -hmm. And he, all right, he's had it for, you know, diagnosed for some 25 years or so. The next appointment we can get for him 18 months from now. Oh and he's gosh. actually been experimenting. 
We're trying to get a neurological uh, assessment for him because, again, he's having some cognitive challenges. Different the quickest appointment we could get, we made this last August, but then we made it uh, this past spring in February of next year. And there's no way I can jump the queue. There's no way that I can actually, I mean, it's a sad thing to say, but we all kind of, for personal reasons, right, always try to pull, jump the queue and get to the front. There's no way of doing it. You cannot say, okay, well, I'll just pay for it, you know? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't work that way. So this challenge is not the rapid access, not necessarily the high kind of specialty you got. And certainly in therapies, we are very far behind. Our latest research shows that we get about 60% of the rare disease drugs that are available in the U.S. that are actually brought to Canada just for approval. And of those, only 60% get approved. And of those, only a smaller percentage actually get reimbursed through the public system. So, yes. I mean, we always say if you've got a common condition, if you've got common disease, mm-hmm. you get great care in Canada. Nobody hesitates to go to their physician. I mean, my sister even sometimes says, geez, I wonder if I should bother going because it's going to be, you know, even an extra fee, et cetera. And she's by no means stressed in terms of being able to afford it. But, um, you know, you think about it and maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, you know, people overuse the system here, but I don't think so. It means that even if you don't necessarily have a you know, money's up front, you know that you can get access to care. But if you need specialty care, if you want to best advanced care, you want to get best advanced therapies, even clinical trials. Many of our patients, right, end up going to clinical trials in the U.S. I mean, this is true for, you know, many of our patients, mm-hmm. including cystic fibrosis. One, because we don't have necessarily the facilities here, but more importantly, even when we do, companies are not as likely to want to put clinical trials in Canada because they don't see it as a rapid access to the market. And you know, it's a good thing for patients, but a challenge for companies. Once you've kind of put a patient on a clinical trial, if that patient succeeds, you don't take them off. You know, And in many cases under ethics, if the clinical trial works, those who are in the placebo or in the non-treatment arm are actually brought back in and they have to be supported as well. Mm-hmm. And so companies find themselves needing to support patients for many years if the system that you're doing it in is very slow to reimburse. So company necessity. And it really boggles my mind. I don't, I mean, isn't there a benefit? Isn't there a financial benefit to insurance companies if we're all healthier? Isn't that the goal? Lord, you've hit it 1,000%. The research actually demonstrates, I mean, Every Life Foundation did a very good study. Keysign just recently released the study. Most of it's American data, but it applies internationally. We're doing a global study to look at low and middle income countries, even in countries where, in fact, we're talking about emerging healthcare systems, where we're talking about not necessarily the very best healthcare. The data are compelling, but in the U.S., very compelling. It is cheaper to actually diagnose timely and to provide access to the best treatment than it is to delay the diagnosis and to not treat with the most appropriate medicine. It is cheaper, obviously, to the family, so you're not going from diagnosis to diagnosis. You're not having to, you know, kind of pay for wrong treatments, et cetera, or getting not access to the right and your health deteriorate. And, of course, but as importantly, it's actually cheaper to treat people appropriately. And the system, I don't think we've sold that message strongly enough. I don't think we've done a good enough job to really put the data out there and say, look at it. And if any system, you know, is paying attention, right? And they're saying, okay, we want to be cost effective. We want to be efficient. We want to use the money wisely. 
you would have to invest in diagnosing and training people. Right. And I think you have hit it on the head, and we talk about this all the time. The rare disease community is not in the minority. I mean, we are huge. We are millions. There are millions of us. And we do need to speak up and out more. I think the problem is that when your child or children have a rare disease, you're so immersed in just trying to get through the day that you probably, you know, everyone doesn't have time to advocate. Um, And getting back to, you know, like the latest CF modulator that came out in 2019 for cystic fibrosis approved in the United States, then in the UK, and then in Canada. I I mean, <laughs> it took so long and in your heart breaks for your fellow Canadians who have CF and even my daughter who lives in the UK. I was begging her to come home because it was approved here and not there. Um, is there some way that we can do it globally so everybody's getting it at the same time? Is it such a complicated thing to do? Sadly, yes. I mean, first of all, let me say, though, Huge kudos to you and to people like Beth Manstone. He's one of my, you know, one of my heroes, quite frankly, in terms of what she and her family have continued to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. And that is, you know, you fight and you fight and you fight. And then when you get access, you don't go home and say, okay, that's done. You continue to fight. And I think that is absolutely the most important thing, right? But um, sadly, um, it is not that easy. You know, I chair also Rare Diseases International, which is our global alliance of rare disease organizations. So we are based in both Brussels and in Geneva. We work very closely with global organizations like the United Nations, like the WHO. And we try to very much kind of work in terms of access, um, advancing rare diseases in low and middle income countries, quite frankly. But also some of the European countries, everybody thinks, oh, Europe, fine. But if you go to Croatia, you go to Poland, you go to Hungary, you know, the level of care and the level of access is not at all the same that might be in Germany or in the UK or, you know, in France, right? So it really is a challenge in terms of getting access. And you probably were aware, you know, at one point in um Candy was there and patients in the UK were just desperate. We were willing to go and get, you know, a genericized or a sugarized version of that drug, you know, from Latin America, from Argentina. And everybody's saying like, no, 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 don't do that. But that's how desperate people get. Mm-hmm. But it is not that straightforward. I mean, it is one of the programs that we have. We have a partnership with the WHO and three things we're looking at. One is a global network for rare disease uh, expertise. We're trying to bring together a global access um, to medicines program. And we've been, you know, kind of putting our energies behind it over the last two or three years. But quite frankly, it is a monumental effort that requires a lot of collaborations. There's some patient organizations that have done a really good job of it. You look at hemophilia. Uh, one of my books is Gauche's disease. They've done an amazing job of being able to get donated products to, you know, patients who are in need. But obviously, you know, you can't just dump a drug into a country. Right. You've got to have, first of all, proper diagnosis. And I wanted to ask you about that. So I know if my daughters were raised in Egypt or in India, um, they wouldn't be alive right now. You know, some of those countries, because they just don't have access to drugs in the lower or middle income countries. And how can we make a change? Is it as simple as saying pharma, lower your prices? I mean, and then what if they don't, you know, recoup their money? Then they can't, you know, 
help work on the next drug. So there are so many factors. And, you know, starting from that point, what do you what do you think is the answer there? Well, we need to, first of all, I mean, cystic fibrosis actually knows what the answer is. You know that in order to have really good, you know, management over disease, you need to have experts that are involved and be able to provide the best practice guidelines. And even if your child or now obviously adults as well are not under direct care of a specialist, they have a pathway and they are actually also overseen by specialists. So first of all, and one of the say we're in our project with the WHO, we're promoting having networks of expertise. We need to have specialists in the countries or at least available to the patients. And sometimes it may be a little bit more remote or maybe within a region. So that's first of all, right? And you have to have the right testing, right? I mean, mm-hmm. even with cystic fibrosis, it's not like, okay, we'll just give it to any patient who comes up with DF. We want to make sure we get the ge- genetic um, mutation right. We want to be able to provide the best. So it's providing the appropriate support for having genetic testing, which is not necessarily the most costly aspect of it. And then what you want to be able to do, though, is to provide the ongoing monitoring and support, right? I mean, just because you're on a therapy, you're not home free. Right. I mean, Absolutely. you know that right. as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of management and monitoring. And quite frankly, to make the therapy as effective as possible, you want to be able to continue monitoring age. You want to educate the patient. You want to educate the primary worker. So it's creating this network. What we're asking companies to do is do not donate product. What we want you to do is invest in the center. Invest in creating a network of expertise. Invest in that local community and invest in the patient organization. It's got to be a full-scale commitment. And companies do that. We have great examples of where that has actually happened. And, um, you know, we can see where there are patient populations, you know, in Malaysia, in, in, uh, in India as well, in China, you know, um, that have actually thrived because of the investment, not just in the therapy, but in the centers. Where there are centers, I mean, Ghana is a very good example. I was just on the phone this morning with my colleague from Ghana. And, you know, what he's been trying to do is they've gotten now the government to do really good genetic testing for, for the patients that are coming in with undiagnosed diseases. Breaks his heart because he diagnoses them and he can't get them treated. Right. Oh, my gosh. Because the product isn't available, right? Now, the government has said, you know, if the product is approved elsewhere, we don't have to reapprove it here, which is a big step forward. Get the regulations out of the case. That's one of the other barriers, right? Mm-hmm. If the drug isn't approved in the country, you can't really bring it in. Easy answer to that is get the countries to do what we call just a um, an acceptance of a regulator and a major. Um, it's just a mutual recognition. We recognize that it's been approved by, you know, U.S., by Europe, by Canada, whatever, right? And so, therefore, we don't have to reapprove it because we don't have the expertise to do it anyway. So there's lots of steps to it. And if we can fill in all these steps, we actually can make it work. And we've got great examples of how it's worked, right? And that's where the patient community comes in. Come in and make intelligent requests, make intelligent partnerships. Um, We would love to have you, you know, guys more involved with us as we're rolling out this program. One of the researches we just did very recently was, well, in fact, uh, we did a project on essential medicines for rare diseases. We did three case studies, and one of them was on cystic fibrosis to look at the availability of therapies for cystic fibrosis in different countries across the globe. Mm-hmm. We'd love to share it with you and have you have some thoughts about, gee, can, would you like to partner with us in Absolutely. terms of how we might be able to work with this? I'm in one million percent. I mean, it is it is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking every time I hear a horrible story. 
And I agree with you. And I think that we can't just blame pharma. We can't just put all this blame out there. There has to be a solution. The challenge that Egypt faces is not a challenge in India and vice versa. Or in Thailand, they have different things. Um, We really have to educate and raise awareness and work with each country. I wanted to tell you this short story. I was at a conference in California over the weekend for cystic fibrosis, and there was a man in the elevator from Pakistan, and I was not in the elevator with him. Another CF mom was, and she had her lanyard on that said cystic fibrosis, and he said to her, cystic fibrosis, do you know cystic fibrosis? His 14-year-old daughter has cystic fibrosis. He flew in from Pakistan He knows of 140 families in Pakistan who have no medications, and he's just randomly trying to get help and serendipitously ran into this whole conference of CF families. We embraced him. The love that he got, he was overwhelmed. And he left with a lot of information from pharma, but like you said, and like Dr. Samia Nasser at the University of Michigan says, it's not sustainable. We can help them a little, but you can't just give them a case of drugs that's only going to last a certain amount of time. So where do we go in that avenue? Well, you've kind of given, you know, kind of raised some really important questions because as you say, donation is not sustainable. We do want to make sure that what we're doing, if we're saying, okay, let's come in and help invest, right? But it's not going to be a pathway to sustainability. And it's got to be able to be something that could grow. So, I mean, Pakistan is a good example, not the dish on Pakistan, but, you know, we've had programs go into Pakistan where the government says, I mean, the whole idea is I'm not giving you just a donation. I'm not just setting it up. You have got to make a commitment to sustain it, right? Right. Because we want to get it set up. We want to be able to provide donations. And then we need to go someplace else and do it again. Sometimes governments make commitments and say, yes, 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 bring it in. And then they don't follow through. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest challenge. Sometimes the government's change. Sometimes they really didn't realize what it was going to cause. Sometimes they just say it so they can get it in. It's a good political win for the moment. This is something we have to really do. And we have to work with the patient groups on the ground then to help us and the clinicians on the ground to hold governments accountable. And, you know, you can imagine, you know, for a company, if you've gone in there and you've put all that investment in there and you think that, okay, we're going to have sustainable. And sometimes the sustainability does come from, as you say, giving a reduced price, providing free product in addition to the product that can be sold. I think companies are not insensitive to the challenges in terms of, you know, the income levels of these countries. We cannot charge the same price, and we would not expect it. And I don't think anybody in the developed country would say, oh, my gosh, you're selling it so cheap there. Why can't we get it so cheap? Or if they did, they need to have their head examined, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to be reasonable, right? Right. And so we can support that, but you've got to have some return on it. And I think, as you say, that's the whole thing, right? That's the challenge, you know? And it's heartbreaking, but there's got to be, this is where the UN comes in. We, for instance, have a high-level meeting, a side event to the United Nations uh, this uh, coming September on universal health coverage. So our goal is to actually have countries, you know, really buy into universal health coverage. And we have a special uh, mention for rare diseases within that declaration. Again, recognizing even if you had really good health care or you brought it in, if you do not look out for rare diseases, they will be lost. So we need to make the case for rare diseases 
being included in whatever health systems and programs the countries are putting in. But that means we have to help empower patients on the ground to actually be able to step up, to actually be able to advocate for it and to support it. So it's a multi-level uh, kind of a, a proposal. Um, but yeah, we at RDI, we're working at the global level. We're working at the policy level. And RDI, Rare Disease International. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's right. Sorry, sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, I didn't mean to get stuck in the acronyms there. But, you know, so that's why I'm very committed to working at that global level. But also then we're still fighting in Canada to get our rare disease strategy implemented. But then, as we say, what else is happening in terms of the rest of the world? And we do know that, you know, the rest of the world really, I should say, many of these patients are getting nothing. I was just recently, a year and a half ago, at a meeting in uh, Bogotá, and one of the uh, groups from cystic fibrosis in uh, Brazil came to us and said, you know, we're out of, I can't remember what the product is. It's a supportive therapy for cystic fibrosis. She says the company has stopped making it, shipping it to us. And it, you know, it isn't one of the curative drugs, but it's a really necessary way. They don't have any more stock and they don't know how to get it to us. And we can't. And this goes back to your point is companies don't want to make it anymore because they aren't getting enough return on it. So suddenly, you know, these older drugs, which may be the only thing some of these countries have, are no longer going to be available. So we also have to look up out for the fact that, as you say, we can ask for cuts in prices so low that nobody wants to make any of these therapies. Absolutely. And I wanted to mention one thing, too, and I don't want to say the country because I go back and forth there, so <laughs> I don't want to mention it. But when in the past we have mailed drugs to donate, they will hold on to it until they expire and then not get them to the patient. So just donating medications isn't the answer. They have to have it there in each country. But it's really hard. It's really hard to watch. And, and I think we need to be very careful. And please correct me if you think I'm wrong about bashing pharma. I think there is a dance that has to be done. And, um, there has to be, um, you know, negotiations on both sides so that it works for the lower middle income country and and everyone here in the U.S. and Canada um, so that everybody can kind of get more of what they need. I'm going to offer what I think is a fairly simplistic solution, which I think scares the BGs out of some of the companies, but it's the only answer, and that is transparency and pricing. As long as we continue to have secret pricing, nobody wins. We, and we need to be able to say, okay, there will be differential pricing. We need to be able to say, you know, this is how we're negotiating it here. But until we get to that point where we are willing to have transparent pricing, all of this will continue to happen, right? And I think we as patients, you know, uh, we oftentimes try to get to stay out of the pricing game, right? So as you say, we're not bashing a high price, and we want to be able to, in many cases, justify whatever the pricing is. And even if in some countries like Canada or like the U.S., the prices are going to be higher than they're going to be in some of these other countries, we need to be able to stand up and say, that's right. <laughs> but we need to know what these pricings are. And I think as long as this continues to happen in this non-transparent way, we are not going to be able to really intervene well. Do I think the companies are, you know, deliberately doing this? In some cases, a few are, but I think the examples we keep seeing, right, are the wrong examples. They're not what the majority. I mean, they're 
you know, bad players in every single sector, including the patient sector, as you well know. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but so it isn't any neat fast, you know, the companies, as you say, but we do need to have a better understanding in terms of what the cost is. And it's not that straightforward. I, you know, nobody's saying, okay, the cost of a drug and development drug is just that drug and it's just the cost of manufacturing. We need to be much more sophisticated than that. On the other hand, I think we are really looking at how do we make sure that we know what others are paying and that we can adjust accordingly. I think at the end of the day, everybody wins. I also say to companies sometimes, you know, Lauren, and it's just kind of making it up a little bit, but not really. Most companies, I mean, the research on IQ shows that only about 10% of patients who are eligible for therapy actually get it, even in the best of countries, the U.S., right? So you think about mm-hmm. how many people assisted by versus does everybody get the best therapy? No, they don't. No. And so companies, sadly, price with the idea that I'm only going to get 10% return. So here's the population, but I'm only going to be treat. So I'm going to have to price it so I can make my profit back. I can make my development monies back on basis of 10%. And my question would be, what if I gave you everybody? What if we gave you 90%, 100% of the market? How much do you want to charge now? This is where we need to be, right? Mm-hmm. How do we set up a system that actually treats everybody? And on that basis, we can end up with better pricing for everybody and that we also then it's a win-win, right? Patients win, systems win, the companies continue to thrive. So this, again, has to come back to where's the transparency. I think the problem is we've been locked into this model for so long. One of the um, panels that I'm doing at the World Ocean Drug Conference in Barcelona this October is one on pricing, investment, and financing of rare disease drugs. And one of the questions we're asking is, what's the better model? How do we come up with some better models for doing this so that we don't continue to, you know, kind of repeat the cycle. We're caught in a really bad cycle. And I think we need to figure out how to get out of it. And I think, quite frankly, the patients could be that group that can help us get out of this. But that means we also have to be, you know, willing to speak up and to say what is important and necessary and not to actually, you know, be feel like we're trapped in it sometimes. I sometimes feel like, you know, I don't want to say too much because I'm going to offend somebody and it's going to have repercussions. And that's including my government and my payer, as well as companies who are huge, huge supporters of what we do. And I don't feel like, okay, if I say something bad, they're going to take my money away. And I don't feel right. like the government's going to slap me. But on the other hand, we want to meet with players, right? So let's see if we can do this in a much more open, transparent fashion. So you know, I'm hoping that we can have this kind of dialogue. I am hoping too. And, you know, when you talk about transparency, I've been transparencing with our CF Foundation and with the farmers that I work with. And I call everybody out. I'm like, I don't, you know, everybody needs to be called out. Call me out if I'm doing something I shouldn't be. Like, I think we just all need to, there's no time to waste, right? Um, And I also wonder, your knowledge is, I don't even know, it's so high up there. Um, I, and it's so wonderful to talk to you because you you know so much. What can the rare disease community do on the grassroots level? How can we all help support what you already have in motion? This is one of the most important things. When Beth asked me if I was willing to do this, I say, absolutely. You folks have the megaphone. 
into the communities. And the people like that are the ones that I really adore because, yes, they're part of the CF Foundation. They're part of the, you know, the kind of standard community, but they're not afraid to step out. They're not afraid to call everybody out and to basically hold everybody accountable and to try to press for the real advocacy and the real message. And this is what we need to do, right? Um, you know, I think the change is going to come, not, I will have to say honestly, not so much from the organizations in the system as much as they're going to come from the outside agitators. I mean, we need the organizations in the system to listen to us, to be partners with us, to sit at the table. ACORN is actually an organization that is trying to sit at the table, but we also need to have a respectful amount of people on the outside who say, you're not doing enough, you're not calling out enough, you're being too complicit in there, so that we also, you know, can go in and really demand some changes. The other thing we can do is, as I say, is be smart about it. We need to understand who are all the other players, what do they need, and this model that I've actually been using as sort of a framework for talking about it at the conference, it really is a model that says, okay, we have to get all the stakeholders to the table to come to a negotiation on a price process that works. And we need to make sure it's a process that everybody can trust in. Right now, there's no trust, right? I hide the pricing because I don't trust, you know, that somebody else is not going to peek in and try to, you know, undercut it or to try to use it against me. We hide who's getting what because we're really afraid that, you know, if we somebody else gets it, it's going to take away from us. We've got to come and be able to create an environment of open, honest trust. And I will have to say, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't sit in the U.S. anymore and I, you know, don't. Yeah, we want to dabble too much in American politics. And a lot of times we sit up here and go like, thank God. <laughs> you know, that's not us. But, hey. I, you know, hats off to Joe Biden for what he's trying to do. You know, he's trying to walk that line, right? To say we need to negotiate. We need to have fair pricing. We need to do more. I mean, it's a small, small practical. The industry there is so, so strong. And the different kinds of institutions, including the insurance companies, are very strong. And I'm not saying they're resistant to it. I'm just saying everybody has their ways in which they're doing it. So it's really hard, right? But I think that's what needs to happen. And I'd like to see more patients speak up and say, you know what, let's see how we can support this. But this is the only way we're going to get to some changes in the system. Not to totally change it. We don't want to break the system. It works. It's producing drugs. And the competitive model that the U.S. had is so essential to bringing new drugs to market that we don't want to break that. On the other hand, it's not getting drugs to people. So we need to change that part of it. Right. And I think you also nailed it when you're talking about the U.S. here. I mean, even in Michigan, where I live, we're having a hard time getting the Rare Disease Advisory Council, you know, seen and passed through the Senate now. Um, And that's just all we're asking is to have a voice so that we can give input. And even that, which is bipartisan, is somehow taking offense to some, you know, some groups, which it's just like, this is just about education. We are not even making changes. We are just telling you how this impacts the rare disease community. So it really, it really is interesting. And I always try to bring it back to the families, like all these families that I hear from. And sadly, the wealthier you are, the better help you're going to get. You can either 
travel to America and get drugs, or you can buy them from Saudi Arabia or et cetera, et cetera. So I try to remind everyone, we're talking about people here. We're talking about mothers and fathers who are losing their children. They're dying. And I don't know how to make it go any faster, but tell us about all the international stuff you're doing to try and, you know, make change happen. Well, I think everything you're saying is right. And, you know, there's a human rights issue. There's an ethical issue. There's an equity issue that's involved in all of this. I mean, I think one of the important things that UNWHO has said, just because the disease affects only a small number of people does not mean that it's not just as important for them to get access to the same, you know, care and treatment. On the other hand, I will say, Laura, there's a huge socioeconomic issue here that you may not be taken disadvantage of. Go back to what I said. It is cheaper to have families and patients aware. It's cheaper to have your primary care physician aware. It's cheaper to have specialists providing the right treatment than it is to not do it. And I think this is what we need to do a better job now on and say, look, if you don't really care about the humanity part of it, if you don't really care about these patients and families, I get it, okay? But let me tell you what you ought to care about if you are meant to be the steward of our society. And that is how much it's costing not to do it right and how much better it would be for everybody if we were to do it right. And let me offer you some suggestions in terms of how we can do it. Educate primary care, bring in the newborn screening. I mean, newborn screening should be something that's so dead easy. We know that if we screen and we diagnose, even if the cases are very rare, we are going to save not only that family, we're going to save a lifetime of, in many cases, disability, challenges, et cetera, right? So I think we need to also go back. I'm, I'm actually picking up better friends with economists now. <laughs> somebody says, somebody sat to me and makes the plan. He says that me, I'm a car. I said, wait a minute, you're not the person I need. I'm latching <laughs> on these things. Used to, I used to latch on people that were, you know, Healthcare providers, or I, I remember sitting next to a break from a, a vice president for a drug manufacturer who was actually, they were having a drug that was actually on a benefit or a rare disease community. I latched on her, chased wow. her down to Washington. I wasn't going there, brought her back up to Canada. But you know, now I'm latching on to economists, and they're going to help in terms of being able to show that there is a social economic story here that go alongside with the impact in terms of patients and families. So as I say, if you don't care about patients and families, which I might kind of get, let me give you something that you should care about. Right. It seems so basic. I don't understand why everyone doesn't understand it, but you're right. We just have to do more. We have to do more educating. Um, And in regard to these low and middle income countries, is it getting to the Ministry of Health and, and talking with them and starting where they are? No. Hey, that's too high level. You know, um, come in with specific solutions. Come in with something from the ground up. Come in with models that work. Yes, you need to get the buy-in at some point that this is going to actually be sustainable. But I would really encourage us to develop more around models that actually can demonstrate their impact and effectiveness and cost saving, and then be able to say, okay, how are you going to help us sustain it? If you're lucky, you might get that high level, but I can tell you there are many countries where there is national plans, where there's high level commitment and there's no resources allocated to it because they haven't really seen where to put the money. They haven't had the compelling case. So you need both sides of it, but where we're going to be really effective is really trying to help what you're doing right now. Talk to the company. 
Let us build the models. Let us create that community. Let us show how it can be done. And let us then try to work. Well, we can work at the same time. I shouldn't say it's, it's not a one-two step, right? But we need to be able to demonstrate it. And we need to be able to show how it's going to work. So I would encourage companies to really make it as part of their investment. You know, and, and even if only one out of 10 actually takes, it will be better than nothing. That is very true. And and I wonder, do you feel do you feel like you're being heard and the international groups that you work with? Do you feel in our lifetime that we will see that progress is being made and that we can change things for people in other countries? You know, ninety nine percent of the time I think what I said goes nowhere. But the one percent, yeah. <laughs> so that for me is kind of like, okay, what does success look like? Success looks like you know, me going on and on and on and on and on. One percent of the time it takes. Okay, that's all I need. You know, I can speak to a hundred, you know, different groups. And if one of those groups come back, I can go and put my petition in front of a hundred ministries. And if five of them come back and say, we got it, that's enough for us to at least get on, right? So yeah, most of the time nothing works, you know, but if we can get those few that work and we latch onto those and we build those, okay, that's all that matters. I mean, at least from the start, right? So I don't know any other way of doing it, you know. Right. And, and, you know, I've heard all you've said, and, I, and I, I wonder, do we need like a global CF group? Do we need to organize that? Is yes, that of helpful? Yes, you do. You don't have a global CF group? No, we don't. And we've been thinking about it. How can you not have a global CF group? What's the matter with you Right. Guys? I mean, we're very organized as a CF community, but that is one thing that we do not have. And wow. so- Let's organize it. We'll get it started. We're committing to, I'm committing to it today. Beth Vanstone and I have been talking about this for probably a year now about getting this going. But no, there is not a global CF organization. There is not. Well, let, let us help you. I mean, from a rare disease international perspective, we would love to see a CF. I, I'm actually blown away because CF foundations, society associations in most countries are so very strong and so very well organized. And you do work together. Oh, yeah. We all work together. It's just... You need to have an international organization. What's the matter with you? Right. I agree. You're absolutely right. And we are now going to make it happen. Yeah, with your help for sure. Yeah, we have, you know, the CF foundations in different countries and you know, um, there's MECFA that works, you know, out of Turkey, the uh, Middle Eastern CF Association. There are a bunch of different organizations doing fabulous things and then all of our nonprofits. But an overall umbrella CF global? Nope. Don't have one. Okay. And you will be so, so effective when you do it. Honest to God, I believe that this could be one of the strongest international rare disease communities because you've got such strength on the ground. And I think, yeah, the challenge now is some people are donating meds and and not everybody, there's no organization like, okay, some people are doing that and some people are donating other things. And then, you know, we're trying to raise awareness and to get us all organized would definitely save a lot of energy. And there's some great models if you want to talk about it and you want to meet some of the other international CEOs and international groups that have set up. I mean, some of them are long-standing, like Goshi, Singophilia, they've been around for a long time. Some of them are fairly new. The Global Skin Alliance, for instance, they have been more recently. Um, 
sickle cell international has been much more recent. So mm-hmm. I think there are some that have only become kind of coming together formally as an international organization. They may know each other better, right? But, uh, you know, you guys would absolutely rock it. And you would be such an asset. Well, I'm glad we are making change on this podcast and getting things moving forward <laughs> because I am all for it. And I know Beth is as well. So to wrap up this podcast, I want you, you know, you've given us so much hope as far as where we're going in the rare disease community. But what would you close on as far as maybe what we can do, where we are, kind of what we need to keep going? I think you already started there. And that's why I was a little bit sort of saying, wow, there's not an international cystic fibrosis. Because you not only have developed really strong on the ground, you know, systems and support. And you know that, you know, parents of children who really, really need a lot of management and monitoring in order to succeed. Now to the point where you've gotten therapies that are really changing people's lives, right? Dramatically changing their lives. Being part of health systems and being able to educate, you know, health professionals. I know of no community that is as well respected by the healthcare professionals as cystic fibrosis. So you're already there on the ground. Now the question is, as you say, can we think about how we want to do it globally? One of the things you might start with is actually what you just started with, you know, for me, and that is have a program, have a project that requires international collaboration in order to succeed. Make that your initial mandate, you know, sort of one of your initial mandates. How can we assure that every patient who has cystic fibrosis across the globe can have access to the best treatment? That will be our mission. Good God, that would reunite a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I think if you took that on, you know, that would be something that would be very concrete and, and allow you not to say, okay, we'll get together and we'll have a lot of fights, but who's going to be in charge and who's going to be in power and who's going to, you know, have, you know, those are the things that kill it, right? It's all those kinds of stuff that keep organizations from actually joining, you know, kind of being set up and succeeding. It's a power dynamics and, right. you know, kind of looking at kind of economics and the money going elsewhere. If you have a mission and you say, okay, this is our mission, we like to come together around that mission, that actually would be amazing. I would say choose a strong mission and go for it. And the rest of it will follow. That is fantastic advice, of course. Not surprised. And thank you. Um, What are you most excited about being involved in? I mean, you're everywhere. You're going to Barcelona in October, but... um, as far as, you know, your rare disease community and your efforts, you know, where are you and what's most exciting to see? Most exciting for me, I mean, I do a lot of work on the global level, on the policy level. And rare disease international, we have a new CEO who I'm absolutely head over heels in love with. She is fabulous. She's exactly what we needed. She understands global policy. She understands, you know, WHO. She understands a lot of that kind of work. What I do and what I love to do is I like to work in the community. So I'm, I'm going to Barcelona. I'm actually going to be going to Taiwan. I'm going to China, Beijing. Uh, we're going to be in Malaysia later this year. I will be down in Brazil um, at the beginning of December. Um, we're up, you know, just under furniture this morning with some African colleagues. I really love being able to be on the ground, to meet with patients and communities there, to do that kind of community organization, because I think that's where the action starts. And you can get people on the ground, especially now we're seeing a lot more collaboration between the patient groups and the healthcare professionals. 
you folks in CF have done a really good job on that. That's not true everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So we're really excited about that. We're trying to develop what we call regional alliances, networks of expertise. Um, in Asia, one of the things we're really looking at is screening diagnosis programs that go across five different countries, sharing resources, sharing best practices, in some cases, even being able to do some of the testing for other countries. So this to me is like, okay, how do you build it? You build it from there. So that's what I love doing. And I think um, we're very excited, you know, with the fact that we've got UN declarations, we've got inclusion in WHO, uh, we've got a new memorandum of understanding with them. We're hoping to get a resolution on rare diseases maybe in 2025. But that to me just is sort of like, okay, that provides you with training. The work there still needs to be done. That's kind of what you guys do. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's wonderful to talk to you. You've given me new hope and energy and excitement to keep going um, with our efforts. So thank you for that. And thanks for everything that you do. It's been a complete honor and delight to talk to you. And the same back to you. This has been a delightful conversation. And I can't thank uh, you enough for taking the time to, to let me kind of ramble on. And huge thanks also to Beth for setting this up and producing all the work that you guys are doing. We will be happy to be involved with you. Oh, 100%. We're already together. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. If you're looking for a good party, an event where you can mix and mingle with kind people, join the Bonnell Foundation on Saturday, September 9th for the Night of Hope Diamonds in the Sky event. We're going to have fun and raise a lot of money for our programs. See the ticket link in show notes or on our website. We'll see you there. The original music in this podcast is performed by Kevin Allen. It's not complicated. Who happens to have cystic fibrosis. We all got our worries and fears. I know what got you frustrated. But loving you is so all right. This has been the Living with Cystic Fibrosis podcast. For more information and to learn more about the Bonnell Foundation, visit our website at thebonnellfoundation.org. That's the B-O-N-N-E-L-L foundation.org. This podcast was sponsored by Beatrice, Genentech, and Vertex. It was produced by Jagging Detroit Podcasts. Follow our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.